Captain Ahab, towards thee I roll, thou all-destroying but unconquering whale, to the last I grapple with thee. From hell's heart I stab at thee, for hate's sake I spit my last breath at thee. I never read Moby Dick. I know that line because of Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. But it was just as powerful. And you can hear in the words, and maybe you go to Mo- or Captain Ahab, I, I, I go to, to, to Khan as he's shouting in the microphone his last breaths. And it's this shout of defiance. Defiance. This morning we're going to ask the question, what motives do we have for fighting? And there are two that I can think of. Two motivations to fight. Two motivations to, uh, to, to pick up arms and enter into the battle. And the first motivation is defiance. And you can hear that in the words of Captain Ahab, right? For hate's sake, I spit my last breath at thee. Do you hear the defiance in that? Um, towards the end of World War II, uh, the Japanese began to lose stronghold after stronghold after stronghold as the Allies moved closer and closer and closer to Japan. And it became apparent to everyone that the war was nearing the end, that there was defeat, that it was inevitable. And yet the, the leaders with, within uh, Japan, not wanting to surrender, uh, not wanted to accept defeat, not wanted to dishonor themselves, decided to throw uh, their own people at the Allied forces like cannon fodder. And the kamikaze squadrons were developed. And uh, by the end of the, the war, some 3,800 young Japanese men dive-bombing planes in an attempt to destroy warships gave their lives away. And what history shows us is that an enemy that's defeated but not yet subdued is still very dangerous. Still very, very dangerous. The cost of of all of those those missions, in the end, is it cost about 7,000 sailors their lives. Nearly 50 ships were lost. And it did no difference to turn the tide of the war. Defiance. This morning, we're going to finish up the book of Ephesians. Paul is going to bring a word to us, and in a word, it is stand. Stand, therefore, he will say to us this morning. Stand against an enemy that is defeated, yet not yet subdued. Hebrews chapter 2, 14 says this. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood... He himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. What the author of Hebrews is saying is that in order to destroy sin and death for humanity, God became human. God took on flesh. God became incarnate. God came and dwelt among us, and he lived the life that we couldn't live in order to be the sacrifice that we couldn't be. And he destroys death. 1 John 3 says this, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And that is exactly what Jesus did. 
His life, his death, his resurrection destroys the work of the devil. The devil is defeated, but not yet subdued. And John points to a time in the future in Revelation chapter 20 where he says, And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. He will be subdued, but he hasn't yet. We face an enemy that is dangerous, an enemy that you don't turn your back on, but that you stand against, Paul tells us. Stand. He begins in chapter 5, I'm sorry, chapter 6, verse 10, he says, finally, finally. Paul closes his letter with, with this, this final thought regarding spiritual warfare. And, and I want us to understand this word finally. It doesn't mean that Paul's about to land the plane. That, that this isn't a closing thought. What he's saying is, is henceforth. What he's saying is that from now until the end, this is your position. This is your posture. It is that of standing. It is that of standing. Paul wrote in chapter 2, even when we were dead in our trespasses. I'm getting ahead of myself. Sorry. Watchman Nee, if you guys remember, we talked about him earlier on in the series. He was um, a Chinese pastor who uh, was, uh, he was there working in the underground church in China after the Western missionaries had been kicked out of China. And in 1952, he was arrested, and he spent the last 20 years of his life in jail. But he wrote a little book, a little tiny book on the book of Ephesians, a profound little book. It's called Sit, Walk, Stand, as to the three postures that a Christian has in regards to all of this. And the first thing he says is, is sit. Now we're ready for chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, this is what Paul wrote in verse 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That you realize that if you are in Christ by faith, spiritually speaking, you are seated in the heavenlies with Christ. But look what he says in, in chapter 1. When he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet. So here's the picture. You, by faith, seated with Christ in the heavenlies, and all authorities have been put under the feet of Jesus. That means they've been put under your feet as well. The enemy is defeated, but not subdued. Defeated but not subdued. That means that he's still dangerous, but there is, that will not be the final word. So Nee writes, Christian experience begins with sitting and leads to walking, but it does not end with these. Every Christian must learn also to stand. Each one of us must be prepared for the conflict. We must know how to sit with Christ in the heavenly places, and we must know how to walk worthy of Him down here, but we must also know how to stand before the foe. Stand. Verse 10, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. We began this series about 12 weeks ago, and we began with addressing everything that we see in the first few chapters about who God is and what God done, has done, because he's done everything. When you look at all the action verbs of the first few chapters of Ephesians, what you see is the only thing that we do is believe. Everything else is done by God. Everything else has been accomplished by 
him. This morning we're going to look at, at four different aspects of this passage of Scripture. And the first aspect is that we stand in God's might. We stand in God's might. When, when Paul says, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, you need to know this morning that this call to stand is not something that you muster up. Right? This call to courage, this call to conviction, this call to standing firm against an enemy, this isn't some sort of false courage or false thing that you have to sort of screw up in your own gut in order to face this enemy. This is a strength that comes from God. This is a power that comes from him. Do you realize that the power of God that raised Christ from the dead because of the Spirit now lives in you. Do you know that? Verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. In the power and strength of God we act. We put on armor, we take up defenses, we prepare, we act, but just as the power to act comes from God, so these objects come from him as well. The armor we will look at this morning is an armor that we have not devised. It is his truth, it is his righteousness, it is faith that comes from him, it is his salvation which we stand in. None of this comes from him, it's all or from us, it's all from him, excuse me. And so we begin this morning with stand and know God's might. Secondly, stand and know your enemy. Stand and know your enemy. I want to spend just a a couple of minutes reminding us of what the cross has done to change us. Paul writes that once we were dead, but because of Christ we're now alive. Once we were under the dominion of Satan, but now we're seated in heavenly realms. Once we were objects of wrath, now we are his glorious inheritance Once we were separate, now we've been brought near. Once we were foreigners, now we are fellow citizens. Once we were denied to know the mystery of the gospel, now we are understanding of this gospel mystery. Once we were infants, now we are maturing in Christ. Once we had an old self, now we have a new self. Once we were darkness, now we are light. Do you understand that because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, our identity and our purpose has been completely changed, but there's ramifications of that change. Paul says this, In Romans chapter 5, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. You were once an enemy of God. Because of what Jesus did for you, now you're brought in. Now you're family. You've been transferred from the kingdom of light, from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. You have have crossed the DMZ, so to speak. You, You have defected. And now the enemy of your friend is now your enemy. Do you understand? You have a new enemy. The devil stands against you. The devil comes at you. He may be defeated, but he's not subdued, and he's still dangerous. Know your enemy. Paul says, verse 12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Let's break that down a little bit. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. You heard Melville's words, grapple. You need to understand that in this spiritual warfare, you're not going to be sitting in a bunker flying a drone in some country far away. This will be hand-to-hand physical combat with an enemy. It will be close. It will be wrestling. The first thing to see there. The second thing 
against flesh and blood, against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers. Paul doesn't go into like a hierarchical structure of, of demons and, and Satan. We don't see that. If you, if you want to see a good picture of that, C.S. Lewis does a good job, I think. The, the screw tape letters. You ever heard of that one? It is an allegorical compilation of letters, right, written from one demon to another, talking about how to wreck the faith of this man known as the patient. It's a beautifully written book that helps you really understand and helps you know what the enemy is is like. But Paul doesn't go into this hierarchical structure. But what he does say is that there is rulers and authorities and powers at work against you. He goes on spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Spiritual beings. You know, a lot of people... They look at this passage of Scripture, and they wrongly think that Paul is not talking about demons. Paul's not talking about anything spiritual. Uh, Paul is talking about, um, you know, the thoughts of the age. You know, Paul is, he's addressing, um, you know, various issues, you know, uh, sins or, or maybe other religions or, uh, or, or, or ideas like liberalism or legalism or, or, or racism. That's not the, the case. Any other ism that you can think of. Paul is saying that those things are real. To to be sure, racism is real. But there is a force behind these things at work in the world against us. There is a spiritual war going on. Paul's not making this up, and he's not using some sort of allegory, some sort of metaphor here. There is a real spiritual battle that we're called to stand against. James says this in chapter 4 of his book, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And there's a lot of good news in that, knowing that you can stand and you can resist and that the devil will flee. But I want you to understand, before, that Paul, before James says that, he says, submit yourselves to God. Do you see that part? Submit yourselves to God. In other words, your first enemy in this spiritual war is your unsubmitted heart. If you are unsubmitted to the reign and the rule of God over you, you stand no chance. There's this uh, story in Acts chapter 19 where the, the seven sons of Sceva, this priest, they see Paul's ability to cast out demons in the name of Christ. And so they try it. They, they, there's this guy who is, who is demon-possessed, and they, they go to this guy, and in the name of Jesus, in the name of Paul, they try to cast out this, this demon. And here's what the demon says to them. He says, Jesus, I know, and Paul, I recognize, but who are you? And this one man jumps up, beats all of these guys up, strips them so that they run away naked. An unsubmitted heart is the first enemy that we must address in a spiritual war. Are you submitted to the reign and the will of God? It's his power you stand in. It's his, it's his might. It's his strength. It's his armament. So stand and know your enemy. The third, and the one we'll spend the most time on this morning, is stand and know your equipment. Paul is going to teach us how to defend ourselves against our enemy using equipment God actually himself provides. You know, what's interesting is that uh, Paul was under house arrest. Um, He is literally chained to a Roman soldier. And like any good pastor, he's looking for a good sermon illustration, and boom, he's chained to one. So we get Ephesians 6. And he's looking at this armament of this Roman soldier, and the first thing that he notices is a belt. We're going to get into that in a second. He says, verse 13, 
Therefore, take up the armor, the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. What does he mean by the evil day? He might be talking about what we see in Revelation chapter 20, the evil day. I don't think so. He could be talking about uh, the various times in life where you encounter serious pain. You encounter things and circumstances in life, and devil uses those circumstances as an opportunity to come at you, to come at your beliefs about who God is and what he's done. It could be seasons of life that you experience a dryness. You experience depression. You experience maybe more anxiety. Maybe it's a season like we've just been through and are still in, a season of fear. Or maybe it's just Sunday morning. I'll be honest, for me, Saturday nights and Sunday mornings are not like Monday nights and Tuesday mornings. That on these, these, these times, I, it's when I'm the most irritable. It's when I'm the most tempted. It, it, it's when I have a, the, the shortest temper. That all of these things seem to be coming at me. And, and little tiny things that, that add up into big things to distract me. Do you ever have days like that? Do you ever have trouble getting to house church? Any of you had trouble getting to church in the morning this morning? It's 1045. Seriously. Do you ever have those days? Like, it seems like that there is an enemy that is, it is preventing you and pressing you from even getting out the door. Experience like that the evil day. Stand and know your equipment so that you can stand in the evil day. Um, when I was in the Army, uh, my job was to shoot shoulder-fired stinger missiles from the ground to the air. Okay? I, uh, I served in the late 90s, um, which was a very broke time for the United States military. We did not have a whole lot of money. I never actually fired uh, a stinger missile. Um, when, I, when I was in, we went to the, the missile range two times. And each time, uh, about 60 of us went, and, and each time only two of us got to fire a missile. So I, I saw a total of four Stinger missiles launch. Of those four missiles, one was a dud, two missed, and only one actually hit the target. Okay? So put yourself in my shoes. Here's, here's the scenario. You might have to go to war with a weapon you've never gotten to use, and it's failed 75% of the time. You see, here's the thing about, about a missile is it leaves a vapor trail. It's a beautiful pathway that connects your location to where it misses. You've just told the world, I'm over here. And that pilot sees you and you're dead within 20 seconds. The idea of taking equipment into battle that you've never tested, that you've never tried, that you've never fired. And here's the thing is, is you actually have the equipment. You have it. It's been given to you. It's been provided to you. You don't, you don't have to show up in combat and then you get it. No, you figure it out now. You train with it on now. You use it now. You don't wait until the stuff hits the fan before you put it on. Know your equipment. Verse 14. Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth. You know, for a Roman soldier, uh, the belt was everything. It held everything together sort of a foundational piece of equipment. Your sword hangs off of it, it holds your tunic down, all sorts of other things. And for Paul, when he looked at it, the foundational thing of, for, for armor for a Christian, it, it's truth. 
Do you know the truth? Do you know the truth? Do you know who God is? Do you know what God has done for you? When Satan comes at you and he tempts you to believe that God isn't good, do you know how to respond? But when he comes after you and he, and he tempts you to believe that God isn't powerful, do you know how to respond? When you're tempted to believe that, that God isn't glorious and that you should fear people, or that God isn't gracious and you have to prove yourself, do you know how to, do you know how to respond to these things? Do you know the truth? Do you know the story of redemption and fall and restoration? Do, do you know the gospel? Because it is the gospel that, that enables you to stand, and it is the gospel that will free you ultimately. Do you know the gospel? He continues, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate is that bit of armor that protects the vital organs. Your enemy will come at you in, in two different ways. The first is to accuse you. I know what you've done. I saw you. I saw how you yell at your kids. I saw how you drove. I saw how you handled that little old lady. I know you. You're not saved. You're dirty. You're filthy. You'll come at you with accusations. How will you respond to the accusations of the evil one? Do you know that because of the cross of Jesus Christ, you were righteous? Do you know that at the cross, Jesus made the great exchange with you, that he took your sin and he took your filth and he gave to you his righteousness. You are now robed in the righteousness of Christ so that when God looks at you, that's what he sees. Positionally speaking, you are righteous. Do you know that? He's also going to come at you with temptation. He's going to show you pretty shiny little objects and things to turn to other than God. He's going to try to deceive you into believing a host of lies and to turn to many different other things. Do you know that you can say no to sin? Do you know that because of the Spirit of God living in you, you have this strength and this power to say no to sin? You have the power to actually live a righteous life when you turn and live in that power. The breastplate of righteousness Verse 15, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. You know, perhaps seeing the, the footgear of this Roman soldier, Paul thought of, of Isaiah 52, 7. It says this, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The gospel of peace. Do you know the gospel? Uh, right now, um, house church leaders are uh, talking about something called gospel fluency. It's this idea of, of applying the gospel to the everyday stuff of life. How do we look at one another's lives and apply the gospel in real and tangible ways? Do you know the gospel? And are you bringing the gospel with you? You know, as, as allied soldiers move from D-Day towards Berlin... They encountered concentration camp after death camp and all of these camps, and, and they became not just soldiers, but they became liberators. Do you realize that you're a liberator that can bring the gospel of peace into people's lives and your neighbors, and your friends, and your coworkers' lives? Can you bring that? Verse 16, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith 
with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. The word that Paul uses for shield here is actually called scutum. It's a particular type of shield. There's two types. There's a little tiny round one for hand-to-hand combat. It's just right there. You block things with it. But then there was the, the big one. It was a rectangular one. It had a curved front to it. It was bound in, in leather so that um, uh, certain like, arrows dipped in pitch and set on fire, if they hit the, the, the leather part of it, that it actually would extinguish the flame. It was very effective against aerial assaults of, of arrows, especially if they were on fire. But here's the cool thing about this type of shield. It was actually meant to be joined with other shields. The, the Romans had this formation called the tortoise where they would link up a, a wall of these shields together and other ones would put the shields over top of them and they would just make this shell of a formation. So when the, 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 the aerial assault came of all of these, these arrows raining down on top of them, together they were stronger and, and more confident and safer as one. See, there's a, there's a dimension of faith that Paul is pointing us to here. Do you know that Paul didn't write Ephesians to a bunch of individuals? He wrote it to a church, several churches. He wrote it to communities of people. See, faith is best lived out in the context of community. It's in faith where we grow, in community we grow, it's where we encourage one another. We help one another. We thrive in communities of faith. We are meant to join together in order to stand and to protect one another. Verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation. Uh, the helmet of the, the Roman soldier was at once two things. It was adornment. It was like decoration. Maybe even in your mind right now, you have a Roman helmet in your mind. It looks like a, a red broom. That was to a Roman soldier. A signature, it was part of dignity. It was honor. He was proud to wear it. It was adornment. Well, when it comes to your salvation, are you proud of that? Like when it comes to the things that you boast in, that you look at and you point to and you say, I'm, I'm proud of that. Is your salvation one of those things? Do you recognize that the God of creation, long before the foundations of the earth, chose you? That he loved his, you, you so much, he sent his son to die for you? That this salvation that you had, that you enjoy, is that a banner over you that you are proud of, that you are willing to boast in? Are you glad that you're saved? The second thing was, was, was protection. Because as I said earlier, the accuser's going to come. He's going to say, I've seen all that you've done, and all that adds up to is you're not really saved. You're not really saved. I see you sin. The helmet of salvation is there to protect our, our minds, to protect us and remind us that we are, in fact, Save. Paul says this in Romans 8, Now in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Do you know that you're saved? When the accuser comes to tell you that you're not, do you know that you're saved? Do you have that assurance? Second part of verse 17, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. You know, as with the shield, Paul uses a particular word, makaira. It's a really short sword. 
It's, it's bigger, a little bit bigger than a dagger. In other words, this is close, close combat. This is bloody combat. And the sword is sharp. And the sword is, is not just a defensive weapon, it's an offensive weapon. Jesus wielded it in Matthew chapter 4. The Spirit of God led Jesus out into the wilderness where he, he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. No food, no water. And when he's at his, he, he's tired and he's hungry, that's when Satan comes in to tempt him. And he, he tempts him to believe three things. One, that he can provide for himself apart from God. Two, that he should test God's love for him. And three, that he can avoid suffering for the sake of power. And Satan comes at him with these temptations. And how does Jesus respond every time? Scripture, the Word of God, the sword, that's what he wields. He wields Scripture. Like, if that's the weapon Jesus would use to combat Satan, why wouldn't we? I'll tell you why we wouldn't, because we don't know what it says. We, 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 have, we have more Bibles than any culture ever living in history, and yet we're the most biblically illiterate. We don't know what it says. When he comes at you with lies, do you know the word of God enough to defend yourself and stand firm with the sword of truth? Do you know it? Stand and know your equipment. Lastly, stand in prayer. Verse 18. Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. How do we pray? The key word in all of this is the word all. All. First of all, he says, praying at all times. I have been convicted of this. First thing I do when I get out of bed in the morning, I grab my phone and I look at my email. Why would I do that? Why would I begin my day by looking at that? Like, why is that the most important thing to me? What if I prayed instead? What about, what about in my car? I'm driving down the road. Turn the radio off. Pray. Over lunchtime. Quiet time. Whenever there's a moment, like, pray all the time, he says, Pray all the time. What if you start your day and end your day in prayer, in every moment in between? Pray while you're cooking. Pray all the time. Secondly, he says, with all prayer and supplication. When we pray, do we just, do we just say, God, give me. God, I need. All prayer and supplication. Do you thank God in your prayers? Do you praise God in your prayers? Do you adore God? Do you, do you worship God in your prayers? Or is your conversations with God, give me. I need all prayers and supplication. He goes on and says, with all perseverance. It should take us back to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus, the night before his killed, is crying out to the Father and he tells his disciples, pray with me. And what do they do? They fall asleep. Pray with perseverance. Do, do you pray when you're tired? Do you pray when you're hungry? Do you pray in good times as well as bad? Do you persevere in praying in, in all manner of life or, or just when you need? Lastly, making supplication for all the saints. 
Do you just pray for you and yours? Do you pray for that group of guys maybe in your house church or gals? Do you pray for your house church? Do you pray for new community? Do you pray for the churches in Green County? Do you pray for the, the churches on this planet? Do we pray for missionaries? That we say? Like, do we pray for all the saints? After that, Paul says, pray for me. I would ask for you, will you pray for me? Will you pray for your elders? Will you pray for your house church shepherds? Will you pray for those in leadership who are more likely on a day-to-day basis to come under attack from Satan? Pray. Stand in prayer. Those are the four things. Stand in the might of God. Stand and know your enemy. Stand and know your equipment. Stand and pray. See, there's, there's two motivations for fighting. I said one at the beginning. Remember what it was? Defiance. Two motivations for picking up arms and going into combat. The first one is satanic. Because in creation, there he was looking at the glory that God was receiving because of creation, and he desired to put his throne above the throne of God's. And so he decided to defy, and he decided to rebel, and he lost but he convinced our first parents to defy God too. And the, the result is, is that we as human beings live in a state of defiance against God. Only God entered in, in Jesus Christ, and he lived a life that we couldn't live, but he wasn't defiant. And he went to the cross and he paid the sacrifice for our defiance, and God the Father raised him from the dead. And because of that, we've been translated, we've been transformed, we've been brought into a new kingdom. Defiance is not how we live. Do you know why we fight? love. Because love is a better motivator than defiance. Love is the strength. Love is the power which drives our standing against the enemy. Let me show you the difference. There's a young man named Yukio Seki. He was 17 years old and he was a lieutenant and he was assigned to one of those squadrons. His leader said that he volunteered, but in a letter he wrote home, he said this, Japan's future is bleak if it is forced to kill one of its best pilots. I'm not going on this mission for the emperor or for the empire. I'm going because I was ordered to. See, he wasn't defiant. His leaders were defiant. And in their defiance, he became cannon fodder. Do you see how he has no hope? See, our call to stand against our enemy is nothing like that. And the difference is the emperor. He has an emperor that doesn't see him, doesn't care, doesn't love him, and is willing to serve his life up as a sacrifice that means nothing. Our king's not like that. We have a different kind of king. I want you to look at the closing words of Paul in his letters to the Ephesians. He says this, Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. These are the words of a man who is sitting in prison who will eventually be killed for the faith that he is proclaiming. Do you see a hopeless man? 
You see a man that's full of hope. And the difference is, is love. He has experienced the love of Christ, and it has wrecked his life. That's what makes you stand against the evil one. If you, haven't, if you have really encountered the cross of Jesus, if you really know what it means, if you really see that the Son of God laid down his life for you to make you an enemy, his friend, when you encounter the cross of Jesus Christ, when you encounter that love, that transforms you. And that gives you a new reason to stand and a new reason to fight because you are filled with a new hope and you know that this is not the end. Do you have that hope? Do you know that love? And stand. The same power that raised Christ from the dead is in you. Stand. Jesus, thank you for being a different kind of king. That instead of sending us to be cannon fodder, you came and sacrificed yourself for us. Before you sent us, you came. You have always led the way. You have always proven that you are good and great and glorious and worthy to be worshiped. And you've proven time and time again that you love. You've proven time again that you see us, that we have meaning and value because of your image in us. You give us worth. You redeem. And so we choose to follow you. And we stand against our enemy. And we longingly wait for your return. In the name of Jesus. Amen.